Dress may contain graphic and disturbing subject matter. This is a horror true crime comedy podcast, and the topics may depict murder, abuse, the supernatural, and things that should never be involved with food. Our hosts dive deep into the internet for their research and do their best not to screw up the pronunciations. All jokes are made with the utmost respect to those involved, and listener discretion is advised. All right, everyone, welcome back to Disturbing Interest. I am Regina King, your evil queen, and sitting next to me is my ever-lovely partner. I'm Lynn, the docent of darkness. How you been? I've been okay. I've been snowed in, as you have been, as <sighs> everyone in the greater Seattle metro area, nay, most of Western Washington has been for, uh, I don't know, most of my life. Right? Oh, and then, of course, Dolt45 has to be like, see, this is clearly the th- shows that there's no such thing as global warming. And I'm like, no, asshole. Adverse, weird, random weather effects are actually changed. So, no. But, yeah, it's been, um, it's been awesome. It has. I, and, you know, I always needed another reason to feel like I wanted to throat punch that man, right? Right. Right. All right. Well, today we are doing our little... Um, uh, oh, hi, Neko. Neko is here with us, as is Rocky, both our podcat and our pod dog. Our shitty intern and our shitty sound tech, they're both doing their jobs shittily yet again today we have decided to do our little homage to love stinks i guess mine is sort of love stinks but i'm going to tell you some interesting tales of how incredibly petty the world of temporary art can be you know pettiness is right there in that group of feelings you know strong love strong hate pettiness jealousy anguish you know there's a dog sniffing my foot now. I just cannot win. I've got a cat in my my face and a dog in my foot. That's the beauty of podcasts. That's how you know this is like an authentic, artisanally crafted, taking it to the people, raw kind of podcast. Because there's always some kind of random house pet just getting on in there and, you know, jingling or poking or, or doing some real creepy thing to you in the middle of recording. Rocky, are you artisanal? He says yes. He wagged his tail. <laughs> He just wants your dinner. He does. He does. That's all it is. Alrighty. Well, mine is the story of an absolute badass who shows that you can rise above the masculine toxicity that has permeated our history well before her time and well after. My story is about the bulletproof baroness. Ooh, that's exciting. Mine actually has like no murder... Uh, no poisoning, nothing, nothing really that disturbing. So I, you know, it's like a bait and switch for you guys. I'm so sorry this week. Mine has no murder either. Wow. Like, I mean, I'm not saying that things that aren't dodgy or weird or I have some gross. There's a little bit of gross. There's always something gross when I talk about stuff, but a little gross. Welcome back to the disturbing diet, everyone. Yes. Lynn is bringing you gross. Just a little bit, though. This just, mostly it's not gross, but I had to lead in with a little gross. Yep. And you also have an obituary for us today. I do. So I've got a little in memoriam that I think we kind of need to do here on the show because a lot of people, a lot of nerds, a lot of space nerds are grieving today. So this obituary, it's not for anyone who's actually alive in what we commonly think of as being alive in an organic sense but it is for a little robot who has touched the lives of many and who has expanded our knowledge of the cosmos i am speaking of course of the mars rover opportunity who nasa has finally determined won't be coming back online after a severe dust storm covered its solar panels and cut its access to power in june of last year Opportunity landed on Mars on January 25th, 2004, and was only planned to do about 90 days of exploration. NASA was like, we're going to do three months of extraterrestrial Martian science because we're so awesome. Opportunity was all, hold my Tranya, and kept on roving for an additional 14 years, 293 days. NASA employee of the fucking millennium, my space homies. Opportunity's final transmission to Earth legitimately had me sobbing this morning into my avocado toast. Opportunity's final transmission. Battery is low, and it's getting dark. Oh, God. I know. I want that on my tombstone. Battery is low, and it's getting dark. I know that 
was so sad. Was his last message for opportunity? I was like, oh my god, that's so sad. Sorry, sorry, Say it again where the people can hear you, love. Nah, it's alright. See nerds everywhere. Could have missed this little robot. Absolutely. He just ran away from the bike. Yes, he did. <laughs> no, my plan for me, I don't care what happens to my body. I mean, donate to science, compost it, whatever the hell you want to do. Uh, but I want to build because I am a taphophile. I love cemeteries. I tour them. I plan vacations around them. This is my jam. You and I are in the same boat yeah, there. We them. know this. My, my peak experience of all time was having an old groundskeeper tour me around uh, Metairie Cemetery in Louisiana on the back of his little uh, golf cart. Give me his personal tour. No, he was great. Tour me around. I love that guy. But no, I would like to make a ridiculous, I want it to look like the Ark of the Covenant, but with like cat angels and rat angels carved all over. I've literally been designing and planning this thing. I don't plan to go out anytime soon, but Will was like, if you want this, you got to draw it out so I can have it made. But no, I'm serious. Like I want an actual magical, weird granite monument that will cause visitors and neighborhood children to be like, what the actual fuck for like centuries to come. That is fucking awesome. Yeah, that's that's my plan for public art. I'm not just gonna put up like a big weird hunk of metal in the middle of a of a square that is pleasing and anodyne. I want to put some weird weird shit into a local cemetery just for the delight of the neighborhood children. Oh, oh no! Have Will donate it to the city so they have to display it someplace. That would just be epic. I guess I should probably take up like stone carving, which I have not done. I haven't done that either. I can carve plates like i'm good at carving linoleum i'm oak ugh, i'm not great at but wood wood is hard linoleum much more forgiving have you tried gunpowder art no i have not ah, i want to do gunpowder art no i have not done that i don't tend to blow stuff well i know you just make a shit burn stuff into it oh i love art with fire art with fire makes me very happy on some primal level that kind of disturbs me a little bit yeah i'm a pretty low fire like i use weird chemicals but most of them are not uh i mean like don't obviously drink them or pour them directly into a mucous membrane but i don't have to wear like heavy respirator or big heavy gloves because it's not like the blood from aliens kind of acid that we use for plates anymore we use like ferric chloride so unless you're made of copper at which point you have larger problems you're totally fine if you get some on you it will turn you green we've made it pretty easy to not kill yourself with modern printmaking techniques so i, I highly recommend just going modern Good but plan. anyway Good so plan. I just thought I would let you guys have a moment to grieve for all our our little space homies out there. I myself am a space crier. I'm going to out myself as a space crier. Like if I see footage of rockets or heading for for space or they talk about Hubble or anything like that or, oh God, the Voyager missions. I'm like, oh my God, it's so beautiful. Look at the space, you guys. Like I'm just the majesty, the grandeur, the enormity of space. My little tiny mammal brain is just like, I'm going to have a breakdown. Yeah, I'm a space crier. So if you are that into space, you know the Titan chamber, right? The Titan Chamber? The Titan Chamber? No. It was the chamber designed to test the materials and the atmosphere of the moon oh, of Titan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yes. I know the two people who created that. Oh, that's very cool. One of them was my roommate and the other one is my friend. Oh, nice. I mean, my roommate was my best friend at the time, but I mean, she's still a very good friend. Oh, that is very cool. So you're like, you're totally space adjacent. I am space adjacent, yes. I think it was like the Huntsville childhood thing, because that's the Redstone Arsenal and all the rockets. The Von Braun Civic Center, and we're not going to talk about where Von Braun came from or uh, who he was previously Nazis affiliated with. But hey, you know, that's fine. Uh, But no, I just, I think space is the coolest thing. The I'm just happy that he didn't do what he could have done. No, no, I'm glad he came to our side and yeah. was more about the space race and all of that. The Canadarm is my personal favorite space tool. It's Canada's great contribution to the world of space exploration. And it's like a giant robotic arm that allows you to go out and like move things about on the space station. The Canadarm. God bless you, Canada. Can we say yet again how much we love you? Oh, man, Canada. I I just don't love your weather. Like, please keep that. Yeah, seriously. What the fuck, guys? We we thought we were friends. I'm for Winnipeg over in Winnipeg, not Winnipeg's weather in my backyard. That is stupid. 
this is not okay. Alrighty, well, I guess I will get our stories kicked off then, since you went into the obituary. So we've gone from the death of a Mars rover to... A badass. Badassery and the thwarting of evil men. Thwart those men. Thwart them! So, Michaela, I'm calling her Michaela because, quite frankly, folks, you know how I am with pronunciation. I read it, I look at it, I suck at it. So I'm calling her Michaela Leonarda Antonia de Alamester was born on November 6th in 1874 in Paris, France. Makes sense with the name, right? That's very fancy Euro name. Very fancy. It's so fancy. It's spelled with an X. Oh, there's an X in it? No. No. Okay. So her father was Andre Alamonster y Rojas, Spanish Civil War servant. Civil War. <laughs> I was like, that did happen, but that was, like, later? Much later. Yeah. Yeah. That was not 18, no. Yeah, this isn't before the Louisiana Purchase even happened. Okay, so. (laughs) So he was. Maybe he was a time lord. You don't know his life. He might have been. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not judging. I'm jealous, but I'm not judging. So he was a Spanish civil servant and a city councilman in New Orleans. He was also a philanthropist. There's a word. Not a philatelist. Not a philatelist. You could be a philanthropic philatelist if you wanted to be. But I don't know what his feelings on stamps were. So... I I don't think that would be very celebrated either. You know, he was a celebrated collector of stamps. Who's gone down through the ages as such. So, he was a philanthropist. He was married twice. Once as a young man, and that didn't end well. His wife and his child died in childbirth, and I think the child died shortly thereafter. This so. was a popular way to go out back in the day before modern medicine. Yep, as you do. Yep. Yep. And then again, when he was sixty years old, he got married. So oh, okay. he lived his life, went through, and got married at sixty. Because you know what they say: it's never too late to find a nice piece of act. That's not how that goes. True love. True True love. love. True love. That's it. Yeah. This is romantics. Romantic. Or, you know, maybe he wanted a nice young woman that would basically take care of him in his old age. That's another popular And back then, 60 was really fucking old. 60 was dead back in that day. Yeah. He married Marie-Louise Denis Fay-la-Ronde, who was half Andre's age and probably 10 times better looking, to be quite frank. She was a renowned Creole beauty. I mean, absolutely beautiful, this woman. And it was really a political marriage more than anything, you know, as you did back then. And at the ripe old age of 70, Marie Louise made Andre a father. Wow. Yeah, so 70 years old, he has a kid that lives. And his wife lives. Oh my God, it's shocking, right? Amazing that he lived as long as he did, considering the era, but Andre ended up dying when his little girl was two years old, but not before amounting a vast fortune and leaving her the sole inheritor. Now, to understand how Michaela ended up in the stellar marriage that she did, it's first important to understand how marriage and property worked back in the day. Newsflash! If you were a female, you were considered little better than property or a burden. So so you were like basically cattle. Yeah, chattel. Exactly. Surprising though, I know, right? I mean. I mean, (laughs) the future, you know what? The future better be female because the past sure as hell was not. (sighs) I'm just, I'm going to leave that heavy sigh right there with a pregnant pause. Pregnant? You mean at 70? So because they were considered chattel or a burden, there were these things called dowries in place. You know what a dowry is, right? I do. Would you like to explain it to the lovely people? Basically, it was like, oh, hey, you're going to need a little bit of like sweetening of that deal since you're not going to be able to bring a whole lot to the marriage as just a human being. We're going to give you a whole chest full of things like... You know, gold, stocks, bonds, goats, lots of goats. Goats were very popular. Goats were very popular. Basically, they were these sort of gifts that came along with the lady to make her appealing. Yes, it was a bribe to say, take this burden off of my hands here. Let me pay you for having this extra nothing in your life. Although dowries also could function as, in some cases, depending 
uh, as almost a uh, like an insurance policy for the woman because the dowry was hers. So some of it was. It depends. Again, it depends. In some places, but it can. It could also be like a a little bit of a, a buffer or savings that the woman brought into the uh, the arrangement. And then again, in other places, you if you were the male had to pay a stipend to the parents of right. the bride. Bride price kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 So anyway, but that's a dowry, folks. It is a, hey, here's some money. Take this woman. Okay. So another thing to keep in mind is women had very few property rights. I mean, look up those brave few who got divorces during the, that, that time and you're going to have a real tragic read. It's crazy. So you were pretty much at the mercy of your husband's will to help keep the amassed wealth in, wealth within a family or to help improve business or political relations. Marriages were often what occurred. So you could end up married to your 60-year-old second cousin at 14 if that was what was required of you. It was really more of a business transaction than anything. Mergers and acquisitions rather than love and marriage. Yes. Much yeah. like royalty, you had no choice. Yeah. yeah. So imagine being the sole inheritor to one of the largest fortunes in the South and a woman. Oh, you were probably day and night being courted by various people who enjoyed your large... <laughs> large something. You were like the billion dollar lottery that everybody was trying to get a ticket in. Lottery with boobs. And nice boobs too. Very, very. Well, until later, but I, you'll see. I mean, you could say that about pretty much all boobs, <laughs> depending on, again, that is really cultural though. I mean, why don't we find wrinkly, saggy breasts attractive? Maybe we should, but we prize youth over everything else. So a pair of perky knockers is what we want. Yeah, rather than wise knockers that have just been filled with so much wisdom that the gravity of their wisdom just pulls them to the ground. And we have gotten so far off track here. So, yeah, this is a, we can edit this out. That's fine. Wise knockers. (laughs) Wise, heavy, heavy with with knowledge and experience. Heavy with experience. There you go. That's like my ass. It's heavy with experience. Correct. That is, you know, that is the... The middle-aged lady body with its tendency to to head south. It's just, it's that experience has gravity and it just pulls us, pulls our parts closer to the ground. That's how it works. That's right. It's I just like science it. here, people. It's just science. Anyway, so she was pretty much like the lottery and her beauty was just lanyap. Yeah, a little, little something extra there. Mm-hmm. The buttercream frosting on top of the delicious cake. Yep. And her mother, Marie Louise, was a very smart woman. Very smart. So even though her contemporaries had made fun of her over age difference between herself and her husband, after his death, she ran the estate like a champ, growing both Michaela's landholding and wealth. In fact, she was the large reason why Michaela became the wealthiest woman in New Orleans. And you know why? Because she was a fucking boss who didn't let anyone hold her back. I mean, a woman in that time, and she stepped up and owned that shit. So, good honor. In 1811, when Michaela was 15, she was married to her cousin, not surprising for that time, a French nobleman named Joseph Xavier Pontebla. Pontebla? Why do I suddenly feel like a vampire? But a vampire, I'd like the count. Yes, So she married Joseph Xavier Pantablebla. Son of Baron Joseph de Fleur de Pantablebleu, and found herself whisked off to France near Paris, like a suburb of Paris, a, a burb, where she quickly began her. Le bon lieu. Is that what burb is? Bon lieu. Oh. Yeah. Bon. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The yeah. bon lieu de blah, 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 blah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> While she was there, she quickly became a prisoner. 
Her life became very shut in against her will. As a married woman, she was almost like a prisoner. And her father-in-law quickly began trying to get his hands on her money. (gasps) Shocker. You know how it goes. Someone just can't keep their hands to themselves, right? Michaela gave the Baron five children, you know, as you do. As you do. That was your job. Yep. Yeah. But her father-in-law and his money-hungry ways put a severe strain on their marriage. As you do. I mean, fighting over money is bad enough when you don't have any. Try fighting over money that your father-in-law is trying to steal, right? They accused her of abandonment whenever she traveled back to New Orleans to visit her mother or any of her other family. And they were just all around pricks, to be quite frank. And so by the early 1830s, her marriage was in shambles. It was pretty much over. But during that time, you were property. Mainly that was because of the 20-year legal feud over who really controlled Michaela's fortune. Ah, to be young and to be property. Or something like that. Love, property, property and love. Yeah. This is a very romantic story. It is, isn't it? A real bodice ripper. Let me serenade you by the light of the bullshit. Fortunately for Michaela, and unprecedented for the times, her father-in-law failed spectacularly at gaining control of her fortune. And does what any crazy asshole would do, who had been fighting a 20-year battle does. He shoots her four times in the chest and hand at point blank range. Holy crap! Four times. Wow. Four times. That's bang. Let me reload this gun because that's the time period it was. Bang. Let me reload this gun because that's the time period it was. Bang. Let me reload this gun because that's the time period it was. Bang. And me just saying it, I'm sure, is much faster than reloading that gun really was. So. Wow. Wow. Right? And then... Because, I don't know, maybe it was remorse. Maybe it was realizing that he had shot the wealthiest woman in New Orleans. Maybe it was because he was just crazy and had given up. He went and he took the gun. The same gun he had used to what he thought was murder his daughter-in-law. And he shot himself in the head and committed suicide. However, Our Lady wouldn't have earned the nickname of the Bulletproof Baroness if she had died, right? Plus, I'm wondering if it's all those corset stays and whale bones and metal fixings and furbelows that everybody wore underneath their clothing that might have actually been the thing that helped save her. But she was home, so who knows how many frills and furbelows she had on. What we do know, though, is she didn't die. No, she was too tough for some bitter little baron to take her out. Instead, her chest and hand were both horribly disfigured, but she lived on. Her father-in-law did not, and her husband became the new baron, and she the baroness. So she became the bulletproof baroness. It's really interesting, too, because in some of her paintings that were done after this happened... You can see her disfigured chest. It's like an entire breast is gone. Wow. Yeah, I'll have to see if I can find one to put up on the the website, which I know, guys, I know it's terribly, terribly out of date. I'm so sorry. I'm a slacker. I have no other excuses. I'm a slacker. Well, yeah, you know, the day job thing, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Full, rich, full life, pets, things like that, you know. Why is my cat staring down my drink? Are you seeing this? Um, well, maybe she likes, is that orange flavor? Mango? Maybe she's into Frosties. And check it out. Maybe she's like, wanna, Fanta, don't you wanna, wanna, Fanta, <laughs> don't you wanna? That's exactly what she's doing all the time in her brain. Maybe she's a furry Fantana. <laughs> I miss the Fantanas. Me too. Me Bring too. Bring back the Fantanas, Fanta. Yeah, you know, I have a problem with Fanta, though. It was invented by Nazis. That's true. But As were VW Bugs. That's I, which I drive. Yes. Yeah, which I, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, way to go supporting those Nazi cars. 
well, as I live on stolen native land yeah. in a country built on the backs of mm-hmm. enslaved Africans. So, That's right. You know, basically, what we're saying here is that history is terrible. Except for some history like this. Like this. Well, I like mean, this. this is kind of fairly terrible history in terms of what happened to this lady. It is. But it but also isn't. Because, strangely enough, getting shot was probably one of the best things that had ever happened to her. Because... That caused her to be able to file for a separation, legal separation, which was granted. You'd and, think. <laughs> right? I don't know. Some of those judges back then. That's true. This yeah. was not exactly a, a sensible and egalitarian time to no. be a lady. This is your property, your chattel. Get your ass back in that bedroom and have another baby. Yeah. But not for her. They went ahead and granted her the separation, and she moved back to New Orleans, where a judge ruled that the assets that she had lost in the prior 20-year battle be restored to her. Nice! Yes! So she got her money back, she got her property back, anything that she couldn't hold on to during those years, she got back. So that fucker may have shot her, but in the end, she really came ahead. So basically being shot in the chest was the equivalent in old-timey times of a prenuptial agreement? Kind, kind of. of. Huh. I never yeah. thought about it that way. Yeah, I like it. The Baroness herself grew to be a New Orleans legend. She was responsible for the famous buildings that flanked Jackson Square, also known as America's First Apartments. Have you ever seen them? I have, yeah. They're gorgeous. Beautiful, beautiful buildings. Now they have a lot. I mean, there's still apartments on top. And I think they're owned by the city or the state. But there are apartments on top and below they have shops in them. Mm-hmm. Including last time I was there, a Tabasco shop, which I... Oh, yes. I've been in the yeah. Tabasco shop. Yep. Yeah. It used to be, if I remember correctly, a lovely little art shop. And huh, so goes the way of tourism. Anyhow, so the railings on that building, though, are amazing. And if I remember correctly, I think that they were some of the, or they're some of the last handcrafted wrought iron railings in the country. And in the middle of them, when you look at them, they actually have an A and a P for her maiden name and her married name. So she designed them. She designed the entire apartment buildings. And she designed this amazing hotel known as the Pantable Hotel in Paris, France, which eventually became, today, the American Embassy. She was an incredible woman. She furthered the city. They have operas about her, plays about her, books about her. I highly, highly encourage you people to go out there and read them, listen to them, watch them. It's pretty epic. Michaela ended up dying on March 20th of 1874 in Paris, France, in the famous Pepepe Hotel, which was her home, and like I said, is now home of the American Embassy. And she is considered a badass to this day. Nice. Yeah, so that's my my story of love and hate and money-hungry barons in France. And highly bulletproof baronesses. Damn skippy. Well, my story is, it's a story of color. I, I gave it a title, a snappy title. It's not as snappy as the bulletproof baroness, but it's pretty good. It's about the Robin Hood of color, the story of Vanta Black, and the hilarious art pissing match between Anish Kapoor and Stuart Semple. I love this one. Yeah, this one is a fun one. So, this is a story that involves so many things that personally fascinate me. I'm not sure if they're quite disturbing interests, but I do find this to be a really compelling and satisfying tale that I think will amuse and enlighten even our listeners who aren't necessarily that into art or art history. Um, So before you creeps and weirdos get your hopes up too high, let me reiterate that there's no murder in this, no death, not even a spot of cannibalism between friends, as seems to be a theme in the show. However, I would like to say we're going to bring the disturbing back at the end, so hang in there. Oh, yeah, but a modern disturbing. This is, and I'm going to go ancient and modern on this one. Oh, moving through time periods. 
no, there's not a ton of death or pestilence. Nary a whiff of the supernatural, even. However, there is some seriously weird modern science to this, and some seriously gross ancient science involving rare mollusks and some delectably petty contemporary art world pissing matches. Science, mucus, and people being assholes. What is not to like, am I right? Definitely Valentine's Day. Oh yeah. So let's dive right in, shall we? I'm going to set this story up in a slightly meandery way, as is my bent. First to talk a little bit about pigments, thence to the dramatis personae, and then on to the meat of this feud. Because we don't have all night, and I don't want to bore the socks off of anyone listening who isn't either a painter or a chemist, this is less about how exactly paints or dyes are made in general, and more about how rare and difficult to obtain colors become almost a currency in their own right. Though this story is ultimately about a color that is, to quote the movie Spinal Tap, none more black, I'm going to start us off with the color purple. No, not the movie starring Whoopi Goldberg. Damn! No, nor the book by Alice Walker. Damn! But it is about the color that makes up the V section of that rainbow guy, Roy G. Biv. So yeah, purple. I'm bringing it up as a way to show that people with a lot of money and power will pretty much try to own just about fucking anything, including a color. Way back in the super old days, as in BC days, as early as the 15th century before Christ, the clever folks living on the coast of ancient Phoenicia, which is now present-day Lebanon, in the city of Tyre, discovered that you could make a rich purple dye out of a little old sea snail named the spiny dye murex. This snail was about two and a half to three and a half inches long. Much like my eggs stick. But um bumsh. But could it make purple dye? When he was sick. You should probably consult a doctor about yeah, that's that. That's why he's my ex. All right. But the snail is about two and a half three inch, to three and a half inches long, and it lived in the shallow waters off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So the process of making this dye, was, which came to be known as Tyrian purple, uh, due to the city of origin, it was a real hell of a thing to I make this dye. I was going to ask you if it was the city of origin or Tyrion Lannister, because it would make me much happier if it was Tyrion Lannister. No, this is the... Damn. It's snails. Not not a very popular fictional character by Damn. by George R. 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 Martin. R. No. R. Martin. R. Martin. No. No. Just just some snails. Okay. Okay. So making this die was a process. So you couldn't just scoop up a wee little snail and like tickle its little slimy belly until it ralphed up some purple goo. Oh no no. That'd be way too easy. Instead, thousands of these eensy weensy little guys had to be found and harvested from the sea, and then the poor little dudes were dispatched. They were murdered. So there was a little death, a lot of deaths, a ton of snail deaths. A lot of tiny deaths. So many wee, tiny, mollusk deaths. But they were then removed from the shell. The body was removed from the shell. And their lifeless, slimy little bodies were left to soak for a while and get all nice and bloaty and gross. And then their super tiny little gland was removed from this already really tiny snail, and then that gland was squished, and that purple snail Kool-Aid juice was then put in a basin and left in the sunlight where some seriously funky organic chemical juju was to take place. Who the fuck figures this stuff out? Right? So, first the snail manic panic turned white, then yellow, then green, then violet, And then red, which just got darker and darker. So this was like the amazing color-changing snail mucus. They're they're mood snails. They are mood snails, yes. The artisans making the dye would stop the color transformation process at just the right time to obtain exactly the tone that they wanted. Most Tyrian purple dye varied from crimson to violet, but all of it was this super rich, bright, long-lasting color. Oh, hello, small dog friend. Did you want to eat my homework? There's a dog that's trying desperately to eat my homework. He really wants to come up here. He really does. Uh, dude, I, I don't think dogs can broadcast. I think all we're going to get is like, hark, hark, in the, in the microphone, and I don't know if anybody wants that. Hello, sir. Hello, sir. So artisans would stop the color transformation process at just the right time to obtain exactly the tone they wanted. 
Most Tyrian purple dye varied from crimson to violet, but all of it was super rich and bright and very long lasting. Like this stuff was amazing. And more importantly, it was rare as hell and thus ex- insanely valuable and extremely expensive. Don't they still make it to this day? Um, not really. I'll, I'll explain. Well, there have been a few people that have done little kind of experimental batches. Like to give you a couple modern day facts and figures just to show you how difficult to make this stuff is and how expensive these royal snail squeezins are. Uh, when a German chemist named Paul Friedlander tried to recreate Tyrian purple in 2008, it required 12,000 of the tiny mollusks to make 1.4 ounces of dye, which was just about enough to color a handkerchief. Holy shit! Indeed. Yeah, in the year 2000, a single gram of Tyrian purple that was made from 10,000 snails using the original process sold for 2,000 euros, or about $2,300 U.S. Why the fuck aren't we out there squeezing snail squeezins? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe this is our new our new get capital rich, venture. Get rich slow scheme, because that's a fuck ton of snails. That is a fuck ton of yeah. snails. How, how can we find these snails? Tell me more about I, these snails and where they live. I think we have to go to Lebanon. I don't know. That oh, seems damn. to be where it's located. There aren't any of these snails right here off the good old Washington coast. It's a little cold for that. God damn Sorry. it. Yeah, this stuff is super crazy expensive, so Tyrian purple for Target is pretty unlikely to be hitting store shelves anytime soon. Tyrian purple was, in fact, so valuable and such a va- like a fantastic visual indicator of one's wealth and importance that it was pretty much the sole province of royalty and high-ranking officials of church and state. In the Old Testament, the Old Goddamn Testament, God himself even demands Moses have the Israelites bring him an offering, quote, of cloth made of blue and purple and scarlet. God wants you to give him this shit. It's that fancy. Alexander the Goddamn Great. That Alexander. The Alexander. The Alexander. The, you know. Yes. The Great. The Great. He's the Alexander. Great. Wore all purple when he was in residence on the throne. And the Roman emperors got extra grabby hands and protectionist about their fancy purple. It is claimed that Caligula had the king of Mauritania murdered, straight up took out a hit on the king of Mauritania over how splendid his purple cloak was. You know, Caligula and his PR really fascinates they, me. Yes. Okay. Uh, and Hey, and speaking of unpopular emperors, Nero is... Uh, another yeah. one. He was, his PR was even yeah, worse. didn't fiddle. No. No, did no. not. Yeah, no. It's claimed that Nero forbade the use of purple dyes for any but his own use. So, very fancy. And it is true that in the late Roman Empire, the sale of purple cloth was regulated by the state... And any attempt to sell outside of their monopoly truly was punishable by death. Purple was serious goddamn business. You know, maybe maybe he was just trying to save the snails from extinction. I mean, maybe. We don't know. We yeah. don't know, Nero. We don't know his life. Yeah, maybe he was actually like an early member of PETA. Could be. Could be. Now, all of that changed for us hoi polloi, us purple-loving little people, us tiny princes, in the year 1856 when an 18-year-old British chemistry student named William Henry Perkin was futzing around in the lab trying to make a synthetic version of quinine to prevent malaria. Well, he didn't do that, but he accidentally created the first synthetic aniline dye. In a shade of purple, he mellifluously christened Mauverine, which sounds like the gayest member of the X-Men ever. Mauverine. Oh my God, it does! Mauverine. It was later shortened to mauve, or mauve, depending on who you are. Mauverine! Penises in each hand! Just a bag, like flappy dicks, just wah! Whapping them everywhere. Yes, but Mauverine was later shortened to mauve, and it became the first in a series of modern industrial dyes to revolutionize the worlds of chemistry, fashion, and art. Now it is absolutely possible, and quite common, for a color to be trademarked, like Tiffany Blue or Coca-Cola Red or even the famous What Can Brown Do For You on the side of UPS trucks. Like, I'm sorry, that is the least delicious catchphrase. What can brown do for you? Nothing. I want nothing. I don't want brown. 
No. I know what Brown can do for me. I know what Brown has done for me. And you know what? The only time that I want Brown to do for me is when I am gobbling down prunes, begging for Brown to do for me. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, not exactly. But that is a trademarked Brown. That particular Brown is trademarked. So what that means, however, is not that the company owns that color and are the only people that can ever use that color. What that means is that you can't use it if you are a direct competitor in the same industry as the company owning that trademark color. For instance, both Target and Coca-Cola use essentially the same bright primary shade of red in their logo and branding, but they're not in competition with each other, so there's no problem. But Target or Coke or UPS or any of those big multinationals cannot legally stop me from, say, I don't know, spray painting a bunch of space wizards in their trademarked logo colors all over the side of a van and then even selling that van to the Guggenheim as a piece of installation art that I entitled, I can't believe you paid me a million dollars for this shit. They can't do that. They can only trademark very specific uses of that color. If somebody would like to send us a picture of a space wizard in a van, please, please send us a picture of space wizards on a van or in a van. Either way, I don't care. We need all your space wizards. Just If I could just get a daily space wizard in my inbox, no dick pics, just space wizards, I would be very happy. So send that to us, please. Absolutely. Email us at disturbinginterest at gmail.com. Or you know what? DM us, add us on Twitter at podcast underscore DI. Yes, please. We need, we need your space wizards, your internet space wizards. Anyway, back to color. So this freaky color beast is one of the darkest substances known to humanity, absorbing up to 99.96% of visible light. What the and it, fuck? Yeah, yeah, it's like a sprayable fucking black hole, I shit you not. It, I mean, it truly is a trip to look at. It, it fucks with your mind. In photographs, which we will have on our website and our social media feeds, because y'all have to see this, anything that has been colored with Fanta Black looks like it's just literally a hole has been ripped in the space-time continuum and whatever was there no longer exists. This shit looks like you painted a black hole on something in the room next to you. It, it's Lovecraft's color out of space. It's so fucking weird. I just want to go and paint, like, circles on walls now with this shit. Oh, well, <laughs> girl, you can't. If you have an ex, for instance, that you hate on, and you wanted to take an old picture of him and paint him out, and then put it up in a big gallery exhibition, well, you couldn't. Why? Is it trademarked? Is it trademarked against me? Oh, it's even beyond, it's on beyond trademarked. It's copyrighted? Uh, it, kind of. I... It's licensed. <gasps> yeah, it is the full power of lawyers behind it. Shame. Yes. So the Vanta portion of the name Vanta Black stands for Vertically Aligned Carbon Nanotube System. They drop the S uh, and the color black, plus the color black, obviously. And it was developed by the UK's Surrey Nanosystems around about 2014. Same. Yeah. That's when I was born, too, 2014. Dewey and Fresh. This is some serious science craziness. This is wacky, nano-wacky molecular what-the-fuckery, okay? According to Wikipedia, which is pretty much as deeply as I, my tiny, barely-passed high school chemistry brain could really dive in and handle, it is composed of microscopic, a tiny microscopic forest of vertical tubes, like nano-sized wacky wigglers that you would find in front of a used car lot. And they are grown on a substrate using a modified chemical vapor deposition process under a vacuum. Words! Right, so here's the part I do kind of understand a bit, but I also admit to kind of being like, oh my god, how? I have questions. Oh, I have so many. <laughs> I, I, st- I don't, probably don't have answers. How can you work with it? Wouldn't it be highly unstable? Oh, it is It is more highly unstable uh, the than... Name? <laughs> it is it's more highly it's more highly unstable than Kanye West at this point. Oh shit. Okay, here's what I do know. So when light strikes the Vanta black, instead of bouncing off of it like it would say any kind of black painted bedroom wall of your average surly goth teen, 
the freaky wee tubes that comprise the paint coating actually trap the light. Like they trap the light. And then the light just is kind of continually deflected among the tube, like a ping pong ball going boing, 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 And it eventually gets absorbed and dissipates into heat. Into heat? How much I, warmer would it be, I don't, though? In what I've read, none of that is a concern. Oh, okay. It's more about getting it to actually attach to things. And so then, is it, it just walks away? It crawls, it well, no, slithers it just, like a snake? No, it doesn't like, that. It does not do that. That would be cool. Getting it to actually make the little tubes on a substrate is, it's a process that involves vacuums and specific heat temperatures. This It's not like just a spray paint. This isn't easy. This art. is a force. <laughs> yeah. And the question then is, why go to all the crazy science trouble to create such a weird substance? Well, it can be really useful for telescopes, for instance, to reduce any stray light coming into the telescope to almost nil, which would allow them to then see even the faintest of stars really far out in space. So that's cool. It could also be useful for helping with concentrating solar power technology and then for creating camouflage that basically baffles thermal detection. Like it can keep you safe from predator even better than rolling around in a jungle mud pit. Holy shit. Right? It's anti-predator gear. It is, right? I always wanted some of that. What does Surrey Nanosystems know that we don't? Well, Hmm. nothing they're telling you. Oh, man. Nothing they're telling me either. Now I'm just going to be on the lookout for predators everywhere. How are you not already on the lookout for predators everywhere? Well, okay. Yes. I'm on the lookout for predators, small p, but the predator, now I'm going to look out for that as well. Uh, For the most effective versions of the spray paint, it has to be used under three important conditions to actually work. One, a special license, which we'll get back to. Two, application under a temperature of 100 to 280 degrees centigrade, Celsius, C, Yes, yes. No, I understand. I'm sitting here thinking that's not much fluctuation. No, that's that's fairly warm, too. That's hot. Yeah. So you can't just spray it in a room. No. No. And three, a special post-processing must happen with a vacuum, sealing machine type of thing. You don't dust bust it, there's a machine. So again, it's not something you just slap on a wall and suddenly there's a black hole in your house. No. Um... Now, they do make a non-nanotube version of the paint that is easier to apply, but it isn't quite as what the fuck black as the real thing is. So that now brings me to the first part of the application conditions, the license. So Vanta Black SVIS sprayable nanotube paint has been exclusively licensed to one man. What a dick. For art applications. Like if you're a, a telescope manufacturer, you could probably get your little grabby paws on Vanta Black. But if you're going to use it for any kind of artistic type of condition, you have to be British artist Anish Kapoor. So Anish Kapoor owns a color. So who the hell is Anish Kapoor? And why in the hell would he pay for the privilege of soul rights to use a very specific hard to put on to an object color of black? Because he can? Well, that's kind of the short answer. He's a very big shot in the art world. He is of the stature of art, fame, and fortune that very few artists ever attain, either in this world or the next. And Americans might know him best, even though they don't necessarily realize it's him at all, via the 110-ton, ginormous, mirrored stainless steel sculpture in Chicago's Millennium Park, which he has titled Cloudgate, or most people there and around the world know colloquially as The Bean. Yep. Yeah, that big silver blobular coffee bean looking son of a bitch in the middle of Chicago that you see on every montage of in a movie that sets it as saying, hey, this is Chicago, when really it's like Burbank or Vancouver or Toronto. Yeah, that's the bean. That's Anish Kapoor. And the dude holds a knighthood. His face is one of the ones in the new British cultural icons section of the most recently designed British passport. He's worth a metric shit ton of money, well into the millions, the upper millions. So yeah, this dude can afford to buy a whole damn color, whereas most artists can afford, I don't know, like a tube of Windsor and Newton half price of Dick Blick on, you know, Barista Payday. Yeah. So, if that. Yeah. If that. Right. So thus far, 
This is merely a story of, again, how the rich and well-established get to own just about anything they want, including a fucking color. Well, not so fast. Here's where a paint-spattered little Robin Hood swings in all tally-ho and oodle oodle golly what a day in the name of color equality and all for screwing the 1% of the art world. I'm cheering them on. All right. I know. You already... I, I genuinely like this guy's work, full stop, period, but I super love him for this particular act of dickery on behalf of the people. As do I. Yes. So our champion of color justice is another UK artist named Stuart Semple. So Stuart Semple was born in 1980 in Bournemouth and credits being taken to the National Gallery by his mum. It's a mum if you're British, not a mom, a mum. When he was seven to see Van Gogh's sunflowers and this inspired him to become an artist. On a personal note, I had a similar experience with the ginormous Monet's water lilies at the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh myself as a child. I had a similar experience with Rembrandt. This is a reason why just take your kids to the goddamn museum. Yeah, Parents, let them kids. be moved. But the, even if they don't become a famous artist, a champion of color, art's important. I know it's STEM, 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 and I'm never going to be one that's like, science is dumb. Oh, I love science. But, you know, arts, humanities, those are important too. They really are. I mean, I personally have been in science. I have been in business. I, business is my jam now, but what do I do on my free time? Aside from this, art. Yeah. So Stuart Semple definitely did a much better job than me with the whole childhood art inspiration and later attendance of art college. And he has risen to his own level of fame in the art world. Not quite a Kapoor, but still a well-known figure in certain contemporary art circles. Like Kapoor, Semple is a fan of large-scale works of public art, such as one of my favorites of his, entitled Jump, in which Melbourne's Federation Square was taken over by an enormous white cloud-like trampoline that everybody from big to small was invited to jump on. Like, that's fucking rad. Take my tax dollars, please, City of Seattle. Make that shit happen. I want to jump on a giant municipal trampoline. Uh, So he's a big fan, like poor, of big, large-scale, kind of public-oriented art projects. He's also from that whole age of the internet, and he was, in fact, the first visual artist to release a body of work on iTunes, which he did because of his strong interest in accessibility for everyone to be able to enjoy contemporary art. Notice this is also foreshadowing. Yes, he is a man of the people. Yes, man of the digital people. He is a big Instagram dude, which he He feels is. is, quote, such a direct medium. That allows artists and the public huge freedom to connect with one another in a way that you just wouldn't going to a traditional gallery. It's a very different beast. So yeah, this guy is definitely poised to Robin Hood all over here, right? So Stuart Semple's mom, again with the mom, I love Stuart Semple's mom, she mentioned Vanta Black to him after reading an article on the stuff, since he likes to mix his own pigments as a painter, and he immediately wanted to try it. But he then discovered that, well, no, you can't. Not least because it requires very special sort of application, but also, more importantly, because Anish Kapoor owned the exclusive rights to use it in an art context. This filled Semple with a bit of British peak. During a talk he gave at the Denver Art Museum, Semple was asked what his favorite color was, and he replied, Vanta black, but I can't use it. An audience member then asked him, well, what are you going to do about that? And Semple kind of, he extemporized, he went off, as the kids say. And he said he was going to release his pink, but not allow Anish Kapoor to use it. Now, don't get worried that release my pink is like, you know, sounds like a fancy way of saying you're going to flash someone at your nethers. He did not, in fact, send Anish Kapoor a dick pic. That, that is what I was going to yeah, ask. That was, was that not, like, no. release my pink, here you go, but you can't use it? No, indeed. Uh, in this case, Semple was referring to an ultra-fluorescent pink paint that he had made for himself. So in December of 2016, he put this color called Pinkest Pink onto his website, culturehustle.com, for sale for five bucks for a 1.8 ounce container of it. But with an additional piece of legalese on the description of the product that read, and I quote, by adding this product to your cart, you confirm that you are not Anish Kapoor, you are in no way affiliated to Anish Kapoor, 
you are not purchasing this item on behalf of Anish Kapoor or an associate of Anish Kapoor. To the best of your knowledge, information and belief, this paint will not make its way into the hands of Anish Kapoor. <laughs> That's awesome. I just to love roll it. roll level extreme. Petty so, as fuck. Yes. I love it. But wait, there's more. Semple also started the hashtag ShareTheBlack and posted about all of this all over social media. I love it. He figured, you know, he's going to get a little bit of a conversation going, maybe some likes and shares, and the whole thing would basically be like a little online performance art piece. He'd sell, you know, a tube or two to the odd novelty seeker, and that would be that. Nope. The internet loves a good pissing match, a good trolling, and a good roasting, and this thing went viral. Semple ended up selling over 5,000 jars of Pinkest Pink, and other artists began making work with that pink and sharing it with the Share the Black hashtag all over social media. And the performance art piece grew and mutated as everything does on the internet. And then Kapoor weighed in on his own Instagram account with a photo of his middle finger that had been dipped into a pot of pinkest pink. Oh! Yeah! So people went ham on that post. So much go to hell in the comments, right? Though Kapoor As has the not... the internet does. Yeah. Oh, I know. I mean, this is perfect for the internet. So Kapoor hasn't really replied to any of this, but Simple wasn't quite done with his own adventures in color. He decided that he wanted to make a better black since he couldn't have the Vanta, and he spent the next several months basically doubling down on his interest in access by essentially crowdfunding and crowdsourcing the best black paint that artists could make. He sent a thousand samples of his super base that he uses to bond the pigments to the paint, and he sent this stuff all over the world to various artists who had connected with him via the Share the Black hashtag. And they all worked together to make the blackest black paint they could possibly devise. A first version called Black 1.0 was made, but it wasn't quite right. New allies signed on to the crusade for color, and eventually the quest for darkness was achieved in Black 2.0, which was released for sale. Though it is not quite as much like staring into an actual black hole as the Vanta Black, it is pretty void-tastic. And better still, it's non-toxic, it's easy to paint with, it's affordable, it smells like black cherries, and most importantly, it's available to anyone. Anyone that is except, of course, say it with me, Anish Kapoor. Game, set, match, Stuart Semple. Well done, Stuart. Well done. another final important question in all of this sordid tale of color espionage and whatnot is what the hell has Anish Kapoor actually made from this precious and exclusive Vanta Black? That is an excellent question, yes. I do have an answer. Just one piece. A $95,000 watch called the Sequential One S110 Evo Vanta Black, which uses the pigment on its face and was made in conjunction with Swiss watchmaker MCT. That seems like the dickiest douche, douche watch that even Patrick Bateman would not have wanted to order from the Sharper Image catalog. Not exactly high art that causes us to ask ourselves, where does the void end and where do we begin, is it? Wow. So that, my friends, is the not-so-much-disturbing-a-simply-amusingly-petty story of Vanta Black. Well, thank you for that. That was a lot of fun. Fun pettiness in art, you See, know, my arts, jam. Art's entertaining in its own creepy way. Oh, yeah. But so I know we kept mine pretty short, but that was kind of also because I wanted to talk about the phenomenon that we all know as abducted in, what is it called? Abducted Abducted in plain sight. That's right. Abducted in plain sight. What the fuck? I mean, can we say it together? What What the the fuck? fuck? Yeah. I mean, it was like abducted from fucking idiots. Like... What? I, 
you know, I've been hearing a bunch of buzz about, oh, this is this weird, crazy, you'll never believe it story. And I'm like, oh, I'm sure. No, I just, I've been hearing from a lot of people that couldn't watch it or had to take it in small doses. I just couldn't look away because I erroneously expected shit to get less stupid or weird. I expected them to be like, oh, shit, what have we done? And, you know, have a come to Jesus moment and stop doing crazy shit, shit but that is not what happened no no i was in the exact same boat that you were in because mr meow had to stop watching it he just he couldn't anymore but i kept on thinking surely to god this is gonna get better but spoiler alert it does not get better i don't think i've ever yelled at my tv so much my tv's feelings are hurt it yeah. didn't do anything to me it was innocently doing its job and here i am yelling at it you stupid motherfucker because you know it's the one who's the innocent bystander in this well okay so for listeners that have not experienced the what the fuckery that is abducted in plain sight go watch it yeah it is a documentary that is currently on netflix This story is from the point of view of the girl that it happened to and her family. And at the time, of course, during the documentary, she's an adult. But when the story that they are telling happened, she was a child. In the 1970s. In the 70s. To an LDS family, right? An LDS family. Everybody's like, oh, Utah. I'm like, no, Idaho. Idaho has its own kind of little enclave of LDS um, communities as well. So this is... Yes. I want to say it's like Pocatello. Something like that. Yeah. And everybody keeps on saying, well, it's because of the religion and what... Bullshit. Bullshit. I have known many LDS families that nothing like this ever would have happened well, to. I, I will say, I think that religion plays a... So the, the story is basically this family um, lives next door to or becomes chummy with this guy named B. And both, his family. And it's his family. the entire yeah. family. So he has kids this is and a, a wife. perfectly normal, wholesome story of, you know, two they churchy church. families kicking it together, being BFFs. Totally normal. Everybody's, you know, it's, it's a common story across America. But then shit gets so dark. It then goes so fucking dad, sideways. So the family becomes BFFs and the dad starts grooming the oldest daughter. But also grooming the entire family. As well. As you do if you're properly grooming someone. And by grooming, we don't mean this guy's a hairdresser and he's like, oh, honey, let me feather the the ends. You're going to look just like Farrah Fawcett. We mean grooming for child sex. And child rape. It's always rape if it's a child. Yes. Yes. It's not an unnatural relationship they had like everybody May, December. Oh, my God. Fucking bullshit. This girl was what? This is trigger warning, guys. Child, Child sexual assault. Yes. Yes. It, it was rape. It was terrible. He lied to her, convinced her some bullshit about aliens, abducted her and took her to Mexico, abducted her again, abducted oh, yeah. her again. Like, Not this shit once. happened. Multiple abductions, multiple brainwashings. Yes. Right? And that's terrible. Like, that is full. If that was all that happened and the family was frantically like, oh, my God, we had no idea. Where did it happen? That would be awful enough. But it's so much worse than that because the family's like, okie dokie. Like, this seems normal. They let him sleep in her bed with her. Yeah. What what adult is like, oh, it's cool if the neighbor dad just gets in bed with my my 12-year-old child of any gender. Like, come on. That's not, you For don't. therapy. My No, ass. that's not therapy. That's not okay. That, that, I don't care if it is therapy. It's not okay. It's not therapy. Like, no. there is no accredited uh, psychotherapist or counselor anywhere in the country that's going to be allowed by their, their, you know, professional organization to say, you know what, I think you should totally get in bed, possibly naked, with uh, a kid. See, and that, that's the thing. His no. therapist was not accredited. No. The one who told him that. Anyway, obviously you can hear our upset and the insanity Ooh. that we're talking about. And it gets so much worse. Yeah, this is like scratching the surface. I'm not sure how many spoilers we want to tell no, you guys. No, I think we're, I think. This is a how not to parent. Yeah. I just, I felt like texting my parents after watching this and saying thank you. For being highly suspicious, godless heathens. So, when you watch it, just... With a barf bag. Yeah. Yeah. You may have to take that one in sections, folks. Don't have anything that's hard and easy to throw 
near you or you're going to need a new TV. It upset us. And you know what we talk about. Right. This is just... It it made me angry and confused and baffled and it was like a, a just a soup of emotions I didn't want to have. It was really yeah it was really distressing and I I will say I would like everybody not just in schools but like can we have a comp- comprehensive municipal sexual education program with an extreme emphasis on consent for literally everybody so that this shit doesn't just happen. Agreed. Yeah. Fully agree. Yeah. So if you want to genuinely, because this wasn't a disturbing, disturbing interest. If you want to be actually disturbed, go to your Netflix, check out Abducted in Plain Sight and prepare to just gag. Oh, my on God. All of it. So I guess that's how we're wrapping this episode. Yeah, we're up. wrapping it up with an actual disturbing thing. Is this a recommendation? Like, oh, you should totally go watch it. I'm not sure. I'm just this is more of like an informational piece of knowledge that this exists. And if you want to go check it out, have at it, bro. But just know that you're going to be like, the fuck? The entire time. This is the what the fuckery of my week, I'll yeah. tell ya. I mean, this was maybe not the greatest choice while I was snowed in, but uh, but there you go. Well, maybe it was because then you couldn't go out and then just start throat Scream punching Scream into the snow. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, uh, take care of each other and... Don't try to own color. And Colors don't try people. to own color. Color to the people. Share the black. Share, Share the, the black. black. Share the black. Alrighty, remember what I always like to say. If you're a hater, then don't be a raider. However, if you like what we're doing and want to help us spread the disturbing word, then hit a like, subscribe, and leave a nice review. If you want to contact us, then you can reach us at disturbinginterest at gmail.com, at our website, disturbinginterest.com, or you can send us items for unboxing videos at P.O. Box 70515, Seattle, Washington, 98127. Find us on Patreon if you're feeling super generous. And remember, you might be disturbed, but you're not alone.